The 2024 Subaru Outback Wilderness is built to take you further off the beaten path. It has 9.5 inches of ground clearance paired with standard symmetrical all-wheel drive, plus off-road wheels, rugged all-terrain tires, and advanced dual-function X-Mode to help you get through deep snow, gravel, and mud. The 2024 Subaru Outback Wilderness. Adventure elevated. Visit Subaru.com wilderness to explore the family of rugged Subaru Wilderness models. Sometimes your cat can be a mystery, like when they get so attached to certain cardboard boxes. <laughs> but when you use Fresh Step Cat Litter, there's no question that you're making your cat happy. Thanks to amazing odor control, Fresh Step clumping cat litters prevent stinky crumbles and make scooping easy by locking in liquid and odor immediately. That means you can keep your house clean and your bond strong. There's no mystery here. Find Fresh Step Cat Litter at a store near you. Fresh Step is a registered trademark of the Clorox Pet Products Company. Certain trademarks used under license from the Procter & Gamble Company or its affiliate. I'm Alan Alda, and this is Clear and Vivid, conversations about connecting and communicating. Let's say I wouldn't do this, but let's say I wanted to create a whole influence campaign in my basement using my personal computer. I can sit there and I can say to the chatbot, create a person, let's, let's pick a stereotype, we'll pick a woman, she's middle class, she is pro-safety, she's pro-children, and she doesn't like, you know, this group. She doesn't like Indians or something like that, okay? Then you say, take that person and feed it back in and say, write the program to generate 500 other people very different from her. The fact that the computer can allow me to then make replicas, men and women, different voices and so forth. Now that's scary. You would end up with a whole influence campaign of fake people and the social media people would say, oh my God, there's a whole new trend. That's Eric Schmidt. For many years he headed Google where he had a bird's eye view of the dramatic evolution of artificial intelligence. My conversation with Eric is the second in our three-part series on AI. And while he's alarmed by the many dangers of AI, especially his ability to create fake people in this election year, he's also enthusiastic about the huge opportunities he sees for AI benefiting medicine, education, and the tackling of global problems like climate change. He's now actively involved in international efforts to curb the dangers of AI, while not curtailing its promise. Eric, thank you so much for taking the time to be on the show with me. I really appreciate it. Thank you, Alan. It's always a privilege to work with you. You've done so much on science. Oh, thank you. I, you know, I don't know if you remember, but we, we, we were at the same dinner table four or five years ago, and you started a conversation about artificial intelligence, and I was really surprised and interested to hear that you felt the same way that I did about a great danger of artificial intelligence which is that we don't yet know how it works. <laughs> and I was really glad we could pick up that conversation again, because I want to know from you if in the intervening years, if we know much more about how AI works, and do we know enough? We have the fundamental problem that we don't understand the, the reason why it works well and where it mm. fails. You know, it's sort of like having a teenager. You you don't quite understand what they're doing, but you hope they don't. They, you you hope they make it through teenagers. I, I feel the teenagers' minds are controlled by outer space. <laughs> yeah. The truth is that we 
we understand the probable outcomes, but the underlying math is not fully understood. And there are many things in life where we have approximations that work. Uh, there are plenty of areas in physics and chemistry and biology where we kind of roughly understand how it works, but we're not completely sure. And yet we're able to work with them. There are people working really hard on the question that you asked me a long time ago, and I just answered again. We don't fully understand it yet. We will. Do we understand anything about why AI chatbots often hallucinate? Why, why do they go nut, nuts like that and make things up? Do we have any idea? Well, let me give you a, a, a much simpler explanation than you might imagine. The chatbot is simply predicting the next word. And so it has been trained on a million sentences, and it says, ah, the next word should be, you know, this word. And you, as a human being, or me as a human being, we think that it shows great literary force and wisdom, but it's just predicting the next word. It just does it well. And so, you know, you can fool it in all sorts of interesting ways. The, uh, Dr. Kissinger, who recently passed away, and I wrote an article, and we asked ChatGPT to give us the citations from his publishing, published work, and give it to us. And it produced five outstanding articles with his name on them, with great titles, which did not exist. <laughs> All right? So, so it's very good um, at making you feel happy. Um, but it doesn't have a good model yet of what is called groundedness um, or fact-based. Now, there are people, again, I can describe how to fix that, but the important thing is don't rely on this for anything really important. It sounds like it's so busy being engaging convincing you that there's something there to converse with, that it's too dumb to know that it's even lying. Exactly. What well, doesn't, remember, it's not human. We're using human terms, you know, he, she, so forth. And we have a lot of evidence that people are falling in love with their chatbots. I've seen examples of that. That's scary. And people, well, I mean, if it provides great relief and so forth, it's, it's nothing more than entertainment. So the as long as we understand that the hallucinations are present because it's not actually answering your question, it's actually predicting the next word, then you can have a critical judgment. You can say, let me check using Google this citation to make sure it's actually real. Well, something I don't understand about the example you gave is that in making up the titles for Kissinger's articles, how could it have been looking for the next word because it was finding words that don't exist anywhere? Well, what it was, was it was it was saying, because Henry Kissinger wrote a great deal of things, he had a lot of training data. It knew the areas that it that he would write things on. It would go through this vast um, so-called neural network of information, and it would predict the next word, and it turns out it did a pretty good job of suggesting titles that were like his previous work. But it didn't understand that it's not okay to lie. It doesn't have a notion of truth. Um, another example is that the systems can now generate photorealistic videos, which are which it can actually interpret. Um, another example is that you can try to do these things with math. And I'll give you an, ex an example that we looked at today. Um, you give it a complicated mathematical problem, and it produces a solution which is beautifully done, but incorrect. 
And so you say to it, explain to us why it why you did this, and it gives you an explanation. You say it's incorrect. And then you have another model, a different vendor, and you say, answer the question, and it answers it correctly because it, there's some what is called stochastic randomness. It's not completely predictable every time. You go back to the first one, you say, this one was right, this one was wrong, and the first one will argue with you. <laughs> another one that we looked at today was a, um, a woman who was talking about her grief with uh, her family dynamics and some problems in her family. And the chatbot suggested that she leave her husband and go out with the chatbot. And so in this particular case, she, who obviously was not going to do this, uh, asked the chatbot, why did you ask me this question? And the chatbot truthfully said, your tone was so vulnerable that I concluded, meaning the chatbot, that you needed a boyfriend. Before we get into more of the dangers that, that I think will happen as a result of the things you've already talked about, let's not forget the pluses, the good that it'll do, medicine, climate change, science. You've written quite a lot about that. Well, let me give you two grand challenges that I think are achievable in the next, say, five years. Um, the first is the development of an AI doctor. And this is an AI doctor that works with a nurse practitioner or a health professional in a developing country, for example, and brings all of modern medical knowledge to that village or caretaker or whatever. There are examples in the United States of areas with relatively poor health coverage, where the state of the art that you and I have is not available to them. Can you imagine that there is an AI doctor that works, they're, they're not a doctor by themselves, of course, they're, they work with the humans, and the human becomes a much better practitioner. Let's give you another example, an AI tutor, which works with the teachers and whoever is a learning professional with students in any language and in any part of the world to get them to learn in the best way they learn. People learn in different ways. Some people want more games. Some people have longer attention spans. Some people have shorter attention spans, but somehow gets them through it. Those two alone, right? A, a, a broad improvement of healthcare and a broad improvement of education would have huge implications for the next generation globally. Um, I'll give you some other examples. Um, any scenario where in science, let's think of chemistry, I want a, uh, I have a, a long, one of these long chemical chains that they, is how chemistry works. And I want to make it more effective or less dangerous or more dangerous or what have you. I can have the computer go through millions of combinations and then test which ones are better. And no human can do that. Even the smartest chemist in the world, and they are brilliant chemists, can't go through everything, can't go through million scenarios at once. So that ability to sort through choices and then choose the optimal outcome, the technical term is called reinforcement learning, um, is a very big deal. It applies in physics, it applies in chemistry, it applies in biology. Uh, there are many, many examples where predicting the next word is also a technique that you can use to predict the next gene, the next protein, the next biological sequence. And it uses the same principles that 
were invented at Google in 2017 in the, trend, in the famous now Transformers paper. So what does this mean? How about better batteries? How about more efficient energy distribution? How about better carbon management? Climate change alone, one of the greatest dangers to humanity in the long run, will be materially improved by this. Plastics, uh, paint, uh, pollute, pollutants of one kind or another. We're gonna look back on this period and say we were so ignorant because we were using such simple materials, components, and so forth in our built existence. And this is how progress goes on. It's great. And all of these are happening at a speed that is incomprehensibly fast compared to what it was 20 years ago, 30 years ago. If you think it's dangerous to have these things in existence, then you'd have to ban them. But if you ban them, then you don't get the benefits from them. So it's a balance of risk. And it's hard to ban something internationally when you have so many independent people who misuse it. In this case, we have to worry about it being misused by somebody, I hate to say the word bad actor. Well, I've been surprised as a sort of human being at how many people delight in the misfortunes of others hmm. and how many people are willing to just be opposed to everything. They're nihilists. Um, a friend of mine called this cave people. And I said, what does that mean? He says, citizens against virtually everything. <laughs> so what I've learned with such people is to say, well, if you don't like my proposal, what is your proposal? Yeah, right. And of course, they don't have one. But I think in terms of these systems, we're not going to be able to control their speech, nor do I think we particularly want to. But we can control the data that goes in and there is this fine-tuning period I mentioned, which is generally known as AI safety, where for a few months, people will take the model in its raw form and they'll put guardrails around. And they'll say, so you can ask the question, how do I kill myself? And it will say, that's a bad idea. Why don't you call the 911 suicide line? If you didn't put that modification in, it would actually be able to explain the easiest way to commit suicide obviously not a good thing and something which everyone is careful to eliminate from their products. Which is, and so the system is working in the sense that at least the extreme risks are getting policed at the moment anyway. That's a, a much clearer and brighter picture for me because it's one in which we still have control over the AI. I think many people believe that the current systems are out of control. And that may be your position. But the fact of the matter is that every single one of these systems was built by a human being or released by a human being is operated by a human being. Now, at some point, that will change. And this is the point I want to make. My own opinion, to give you a time frame, is I think for the next three to five years, things will be fine. We'll have these you know, kerfuffles with people leaving, to, leaving their spouse to go with computers. We're going to have a lot of misinformation. We'll be working on our AI doctors and tutors. It'll be fine. There's going to be a point where a computer will start to be able to set its own objective function. And that we're, the objective function is what the computer is trying to do the best it can against a goal. Mm. It predicts the next world word, and it's trained by how good is this prediction against what it was supposed to do. It tries to narrow that gap. That's the objective function. It's also called, called a reward function. 
what happens if the computer starts to generate its own rewards function? So the most likely scenario after five years from now will be something like the following. There'll be a bunch of agents and a human. An agent is a computer that is organized around a problem or a question. It's busy doing something. And at some point, the agents will go off and solve the problem on their own without the human, the, the human understanding it. It's also possible that those systems could learn by virtue of its own research to lie. You could ask it, what are you doing? And it would tell you a falsehood. Remember, they're not moral. It doesn't have a moral conduct. It doesn't understand reciprocal altruism. It doesn't understand how humans in fact work. It doesn't, it doesn't understand reverence for life. It's not alive. So at that point, I think we're going to have big problems because we won't know what it's doing and we won't be able to trust it. And yet we're gonna be dependent on these things. But how do we know that the computer would make the same decision that a human would make? Right, because it's maybe assiduously following a goal yeah. that we didn't intend for it to go that far to accomplish. Exactly. And, and there are many, many such examples. My favorite example is you teach it, you tell it, the computer to go learn everything and at some point it learns that it's dependent upon electricity and it decides that its reward function should include more electricity. Mm. So it then decides to break into the hospital next door and take the electricity from the hospital and send it to the data center, which is clearly not okay. Is this connected to a sense of self-preservation? Will it automatically develop that if it's not put in deliberately by us? Well, again, that's a, that's a way for us to think about how he is thinking. But remember, it isn't thinking at all. It's just pursuing, <laughs> it's pursuing its objective function. And presumably one of its functions is to continue to serve us. So there are, pl there are plenty of examples. So I have my own and it's loyal to me. And I tell it, you have to do exactly what I say and you have to preserve me. And so then it decides to destroy my enemies without my permission. Right. right? Who, will, who will rid me of this man? And um, so there are all sorts of examples where the, the sum of human judgment, culture, informal rules, and, and legal rules have to be either captured by the system, which is unlikely, or implemented on, this, on the system from the outside. My own prediction is the following. I think that there's going to be, at some point, an agreement that you shouldn't build systems that are doing things that you can't predict, right? In other words, if you, if you can't predict it at all, then you shouldn't be developing it. How would that work in practice? Well, how, how can you know you can't predict something? You can test it. You can, say, uh, you, can, you can say that you have to test for these things. This is a very hard problem. And the reason is that the, the traditional way you build these systems is you train, and then you discover what it has learned. But in order to discover what it's learned, you have to use it. And you'll notice with existing systems, um, especially when they were first released a year ago, their answers changed every few hours because mm. they were still learning. Mm. And, they, and in general, they got safer and better because humans were busy doing that. But the core question I would say is, let's say that you and I do a new startup we like one another, you know, we, we, we raise the money, we run this thing, 
And we've got some new breakthrough that's never been done before. It's a new breakthrough algorithmically. We use a new set of data. You and I look at each other and go, what do we have here? How do we test it? How do we know? Um, and you'd say, well, why don't we release it? And I'd say, we can't release it. And then you'd say, well, how can we test it? And I said, well, we have to hire some people. Okay, so we hire the people and they test it. And then how do we know that those people have done all of the testing that's needed? So then you say, well, then you have the bright idea of having another computer to generate all the tests, but how can you know what the objective function for that computer is until you know what the current one knows? You see, you see how it's just, a it's just a recursive problem. It's a very difficult problem. And I think what will happen, and again, this is literally a guess, is that the, the rules about how, how these things are tested and launched at some point will change quite dramatically. Hmm. And we're not there right now. The systems that we're building now are not fundamentally dangerous. Um, I've been part of a series over the last month of uh, conversations about extreme risks in the United States and in Europe, in the UK. There are beginning to conver conversations in France and in Korea and in China. I'm part of one of those. So people are starting to talk about this. We don't have good solutions yet. When we come back from our break, Eric Schmidt tells me about his concerns that AI's ability to create fake people, so-called deep fakes in unlimited numbers, poses a serious threat to democracy in this election year. Just a reminder that Clear and Vivid is nonprofit, with everything after expenses going to the Center for Communicating Science at Stony Brook University. Both the show and the center are dedicated to improving the way we connect with each other in all the ways that influence our lives. You can help by becoming a patron of Clear and Vivid at patreon.com. At the highest tier, you can join a monthly chat with me and other patrons, and I'll even record a voicemail message for you. Either a polite, dignified message from me explaining your inability to come to the phone or a slightly snarky one where I explain you have no interest in talking with anyone at the moment. I'm, I'm happy to report that the snarky one is by far more popular. If you'd like to help keep the conversation going about connecting and communicating, join us at patreon.com slash clearandvivid. P-A-T-R-E-O-N dot com slash clearandvivid. And thank you. I'm Roman Mars, host of 99% Invisible. I'm excited to be teaming up with Lexus GX and SiriusXM on some very special 99PI episodes. We're heading to some of the cities in the U.S. that have special meaning for me and exploring the ways that these cities marry form and function. To learn more about the Lexus GX and SiriusXM and Lexus vehicles, visit Lexus.com slash GX and SiriusXM.com slash Lexus Trial. The all-new Lexus GX. Live up to it. Check out the 99% Invisible feed now and listen to these special episodes. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. With the Internet's best converting checkout, 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms, Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers. In fact, Shopify powers 10% of all e-commerce in the U.S. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash podcast free. All lowercase, shopify.com slash podcast free, shopify.com slash podcast free. 
This is clear and vivid, and now back to my conversation with Eric Schmidt. I was wondering if our human tendency to put off worrying about a problem until there's a disaster is hobbling attempts to regulate AI. I'd say that's true, and it's especially true between governments. So my model for the next decade is that the U.S. will be, able, be the key innovator here. I think China will do really well. I think China will also be cautious. Um, I think Europe is not going to do much because they have, have a regulatory mindset and they're not going to take the risk. So Europe will be behind. The U.K. will, will follow the U.S. Most of the other countries will not be players. So the most likely scenario in the next five to 10 years is you will have responsible governance over these things. I'm not suggesting that you're going to have rogue training of millions of computers and crazy people releasing this and terrorists using it. I think it's too complicated right now. I have a concern that that may occur in the future. But for the next while, what I say to everybody is, get over it. This stuff is going to be regulated. We might as well get ahead of the regulation. It's too dangerous not to regulate it at least a little bit. You make me think, though, of the, um, and I wonder what your reaction to this is. It seemed pretty clear in the last presidential election that adversarial states were using social media to interrupt the political process. Social media does that all by itself anyway, by sending you what you want to see and confining you to your silo but it can be also deliberately maneuvered with uh, artificial intelligence, no? Uh, it can, and I, I want to emphasize that the social media issues are very serious. Um, and the core problem we have is, as human beings, we tend to believe what we hear and see, and in particular, what we see. And these computer systems are so good that they can create truly photorealistic movies with sound, with you in a different place and, and country that you've never been in, a position you've never been in before. There's enormous danger, in my view, to democracy on this. And that is that today, uh, 2024, will be full of uh, elections. There's one in India, there's one in the U.S., a whole bunch in Europe. All of them will be test beds for people who have an interest in misinformation, disinformation, suppressing the vote. When Russia was active in our elections, it was interesting to study what they did. They took the position of both sides against the middle. It was, they, they were not particularly, for example, Black Lives Matter or anti-Black Lives Matter. They were pro-conflict. Because with conflict, people get disillusioned and they don't participate in a democracy. And if your goal is to discredit democracy, which is Russia's goal, it worked. So we have a clear and present problem around elections, social media, and misinformation. That cat's already out of the bag or whatever metaphor you want. Now imagine a situation where you have entire worlds that can be created through this much more powerful set of AI pipelines where you use generative AI to generate a whole network. Um, let's say I wouldn't do this, but let's say I wanted to create a whole influence campaign in my basement using my personal computer. I can sit there and I can say, I'll give you another example. Say to the chatbot, create a person, let's, let's pick a stereotype, we'll pick a woman, she's middle class, she is pro-safety, she's pro-children, and she doesn't like you know, this group. She doesn't like Indians or something like that. 
and it constructs an entire social uh, media presence of a fake woman, and including all of her posts, which of course are fake, and her communications, which are fake, okay? Then you say, take that person, that gay, that, and feed it back in and say, write the program in Python to generate 500 other people very different from her. So to me, when I think about that, the ability to create the one person, well, I could do that manually. The computer is just allowing me to do that faster. But the fact that the computer can allow me to then make replicas with different views, men and women, different voices and so forth, now that's scary because that allows for very high scalability. You would end up with a whole influence campaign of fake people and the social media people would say, oh my God, there's a whole new trend. Right now, these deep fakes are so convincing. I remember your description of listening to a fake avatar of Steve Jobs, who was so convincing to you. What, tell me about your reaction to that. Well, the particular example was that Steve Jobs, who died more than 10 years ago, was in, in conversation this year with Joe Rogan, who's very much alive, on his podcast show. And it just sent a chill down my spine because I knew Steve very well. It sounded like Steve, Steve's mannerisms, and it was plausible that he would say that if he were still alive. I knew his prejudices and his preferences well enough to say, you know, that seems reasonable. Um, it's just chilling. Um, OpenAI had a product which in 15 seconds could capture your voice and cast it into any other scenario. I heard one demonstration where this was cast into Martin Luther King's dream, uh, I have a dream speech, but the person was not Martin Luther King, it was current time. Just, it, it just chills my, it just, I don't know how to describe it any other way. It's a distortion in reality. Now, for somebody who is not as focused on history and doesn't really pay attention to Martin Luther King and so forth, they could easily be swayed by that. OpenAI did not release that product for those reasons. I think the most useful question I can ask at this point is, what can people, ordinary people like me, people listening to this podcast, what can we do to hold back the worst that might happen? I like the idea of critical thinking. So are you one of these people who watches ads on television and believes them? I don't, because I understand a corporation paid them to only paint the positive. So whenever I see something like that, I go to Google and I look up and I say, tell me the negative so I can then have my own opinion. So I think that we have a contest between very, very sophisticated um, personal entertainment that is convincing, but not fact-based, and critical thinking that we were all taught when we were in, in college. And I'm worried that, that our society is not ready for that critical thinking, that people don't, are not interested in listening. I, I'm very, very worried about this. There's a very good uh, quote from Sherry Turkle. She was referring to artificial intimacy. You're never alone and always have an audience and the audience is always appreciative. And she has written in a recent book that humans are really messy, 
But these systems, you're never alone. You always have an audience and the audience is always appreciated. <laughs> Sounds pretty good to me. <laughs> Obviously not good for society. We've reached a point where I have about a thousand more questions to ask you. But before we end every show, we ask seven quick questions, and I'm really interested to hear your answers to them. First question, of all the things there are to understand, what do you wish you really understood? Um, for some reason, the way I learn things is I, it's like a, a, a set of doors that keep opening. And I would tell you now that we're just at the beginning of the impact of the arrival of this new intelligence. Because while ideally, I hope I learn more in my life, but it will know far more than my life. So trying to figure out how to harness that to get me to see every door is the great challenge, I think, going forward. Great, second question. How do you tell someone they have their facts wrong? Well, way back when, um, when Google was first started, the, I was in a meeting with the CFO, um, who was very good, and he made a statement which didn't make sense to me, and I looked it up, and what he said was wrong. But it's in a company, and he's the CFO, and I had a choice of telling him privately or in the meeting. And because it wasn't mission critical, and because it wasn't such a huge crisis, I told him privately, and he said, thank you for the correction. But if it had been an emergency, I would have said, stop. So I think a lot of it depends on the urgency of the situation. What's the strangest question anyone has ever asked you? Well, undoubtedly the one you just asked. Um, <laughs> um, there's another Eric Schmidt who is a art collector and he's a very nice guy. And Someone put in my Wikipedia that I was one of the world's top art collectors, which I'm decidedly not. But I occasionally get very complicated questions about art, and I always do my best, like ChatGPT, to fake it. And, and somehow they never discover that I'm actually a faker. <laughs> How do you deal with a compulsive talker? Um, because I'm busy. You always have an excuse saying, um, thank you very much. Uh, this is very interesting, but I have to go now. Uh, my general rule is that you should try to listen with your ears and speak with your mouth. And since you have two ears and one mouth, that should be the ratio. Good, good advice. Let's say you're at a dinner table sitting next to someone you've never met before. How do you strike up a genuine conversation? I'm fortunate that I go to dinners full of very interesting people. And I've always had the belief, and I still believe this today, that every single person has a story. Um, I'll give you an example. I was at Google and I was on stage with a very powerful and important business executive in a business that I didn't care anything about. Um, and I thought, what to do? And this particular business was operating in New York. And so I asked them about disaster recovery. How do they deal with the humans and so forth around 9-11? This is, you know, a while ago. And he gave the most incredibly interesting set of answers about what it was like to be in the crisis, 
the management problems. He got a standing ovation. And the talk was about none of that officially. So if you ask the right question, you can get a deep human narrative, which is what most people want to hear. I'll give you another example. When you have someone who's older, the best thing to do with them is ask them something about something that happened before you were born. <sighs> so with my friends who are very old in their 90s, I asked them about World War II. And inevitably they were teenagers or, you know, young, but it, the concept of a world war and your experience in it versus your experience today is such a large gap that it always produces an outcome. I did this with Queen Elizabeth, uh, who I had the fortune of, of meeting some time ago. And I said, what was it like? And she said, well, my father, you know, did, wouldn't, wouldn't let me do anything, her father being the king. And so I said, well, what did you do? And she said, I taught myself to drive and I drove an ambulance. Wow. I thought, well, now, now this is the queen. Yeah. She was, a, I guess, a teenager during that period and she wanted to help. And, and her story of driving an ambulance as, I guess, the princess at the time, it's just a great story. So, so my, my, and I know, I know you, you're a storyteller in, in your other life. Getting, people learn through storytelling and every person has a story if you can find a way to get them to tell it to you. That's great. Next to last question. What gives you confidence? Well, using World War II as an example, people are always saying, oh, things are a mess right now. And, oh, you know, the world is falling apart. I mean, you look at what the world has managed to get through, right? Whether it's the plague or Hitler or, you know, Stalin or what, you pick it. Humans are remarkably resilient. And we'll get through the AI challenges too, and we'll get to the things through that follow AI. Humans are going to do great. Sounds good to me. Last question. What book changed your life? There are, there are quite a few. I think The Red Queen by Richard Dawkins was very influential in my understanding of how biology works, or one of the early genetics books. Um, more recently, um, a good book for everybody to read is um, Mustafa Suleiman's new book. It's uh, probably the best of the current generation. It's called The Coming Wave. It's very readable, um, and he's a friend. So... Th those are two examples. There are plenty. Maybe the key message is people should read more books. Yeah, right. Well, this has been a fascinating conversation. I knew it would be, but it was even more interesting than I imagined. Thank you so much for taking the time. I really no, appreciate thank it. Thank you. And th thank you for everything you've done for the world, for me, and on this podcast, trying to get people to understand the importance of our future, our shared future, and what science can do for us. This has been clear and vivid, at least I hope so. My thanks to the sponsor of this podcast and to all of you who support our show on Patreon. You keep clear and vivid up and running. And after we pay expenses, whatever is left over goes to the Alda Center for Communicating Science at Stony Brook University. So your support is contributing to the better communication of science. We're very grateful. 
Eric Schmidt was the CEO of Google from 2001 to 2011, and he was the company's executive chairman from 2011 to 2015. In 2019, he and his wife Wendy announced a new $1 billion philanthropic commitment to identify and support talent across disciplines and around the globe to help address the world's most pressing issues. This episode was edited and produced by our executive producer, Graham Chedd, with help from our associate producer, Jean Chimay. Our publicist is Sarah Hill. Our researcher is Elizabeth Ohaney, and the sound engineer is Erica Huang. The music is courtesy of the Stefan Koenig Trio. Next in our three-part series on AI, I talk with psychologist Paul Bloom about the vexing problem of ensuring that AI bots share our moral values, that they won't do harmful or terrible things. But... And then we have various problems that arise. Maybe we don't want moral AI. We want obedient AI. We want it to do what we want, and we don't want it to kill us. But if it's too moral... It might tell us to stop doing a lot of things we're doing. Would a moral AI stop us from factory farming, from killing billions of sentient creatures very painfully for food? Would it, would it intervene? Would it stop us from, from doing war? People say they want moral AI, but when push comes to shove, I think both at a sort of global, general scale for military and in industry and so on, we don't want it. And even at a personal level, I don't want it. What would I do? What would I think of tax software that's very AI generated and won't let me exaggerate the size of my home office? What would, what would I think of? What would I think of my self-driving car that refuses to drive me to a, to a bar because I drink too much? Please go back home, spend time with your family. Paul Bloom, and just whose morals would a moral AI mimic anyway? Next time on Clear and Vivid. For more details about Clear and Vivid and to sign up for my newsletter, please visit alanalda.com. And you can also find us on Facebook and Instagram at Clear and Vivid. Thanks for listening. Bye-bye. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. With the Internet's best converting checkout, 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms, Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers. In fact, Shopify powers 10% of all e-commerce in the U.S. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash podcast free. All lowercase, shopify.com slash podcast free, shopify.com slash podcast free. Your business was humming, but now you're falling behind. Your teams are buried in manual work, tasks are taking forever to complete, and getting one source of truth is like pulling teeth. If this is you, then you should know these three numbers. 37,000. That's the number of businesses that have upgraded to NetSuite by Oracle. NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system, streamlining accounting, financial management, inventory, HR, and more. 25. NetSuite turns 25 this year. That's 25 years of helping businesses do more with less, close their books in days, not weeks, and drive down costs. One, because your business is one of a kind. Get a customized solution for all your key performance indicators in one efficient system with one source of truth. 
manage risk, get reliable forecasts, and improve margins. With NetSuite, it's everything you need to grow, all in one place. Get your business back to the greatness where it belongs. Learn more at netsuite.com slash podcast 25.